glad to be with you this morning. My name is Micah. I'm the worship and outreach pastor here at Emmanuel. So normally I'm over here, not quitting my day job. I just uh, have a unique opportunity to share with you this morning. Um, <clears throat> so most of you know that we've been in the book of Matthew this year. And Matthew's book places an emphasis on gaining understanding by exploring, exploring what it means to be human and presents his writings in kind of an orderly, almost academic way. So you get this sort of, this, I think it's a cool mix of like, hey, messy humanity, and then here's how you work with that, with people, and not wear them out, you know? Um, well, wear them out when necessary, let's say that. Um, so it's really cool. And that brings us to our text for today from Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If you are listened to, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If that person refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen, even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it goes without saying that we live in a really polarizing time. The U.S. is polarizing faster than most global democracies. I learned recently that there's political representatives in places like Japan and England that are actually hired to mitigate what has become a proven health hazard. Any guesses what the health hazard is? Loneliness. All of this has likely been underscored by a shared admission. Why is our inability to listen to one another well and the curiosity that goes along with it so limited? I've thought to myself, often, even with great effort, why is my ability to hear, see, and understand my sisters and brothers so difficult so frequently? Within this questioning, some of us may um, even reference a golden era in our faith journey where conflict and disagreement somehow increased our connection to one another, marking a beautiful time of relationships oriented around Jesus, where listening really worked in the way that Jesus outlines in this text. Others of us, especially maybe if you're new here or new to the Christian story, you desire this. But now, regardless of what group you're in, maybe you've like silently and quietly resigned yourselves from that real desire or hope for community. Uh, in my mid-20s, I was in a small group that kind of embodied, a couple of small groups, not a small group in everywhere in my 20s, <laughs> when I came to faith. Uh, well, actually, I came to faith prior, but I really felt like embodied this kind of community I'm talking about was happening in my 20s. It was dynamic. I was with several people from different backgrounds. Nobody really had real responsibilities. Confession was happening. Restoration was happening. Lives were changing in this group. And you know what? It ended. <laughs> it had a good run. Three years is a good run for a small group, amen? But it, had a, it, it ended. Relationships break. People are abused spiritually, emotionally. People relocate. Perhaps for some of us, we've never experienced it anyway, again, like I said before. So it's more of an aspirational hope. Still, Jesus in these verses calls us to what we'll call a reconciling community. And Jesus says it's foundational, not a tertiary thing, not like an added benefit to your life. So I believe this text today has something for everyone grieving from or hoping for this type of connection. To pull back on Matthew 18, um, a fascinating set of texts where Jesus is painting a picture of what it means to preserve community, 
carefully utilizing themes of grace and discipline, kind of like an orchestra conductor to illustrate community in what's known as an upside-down kingdom. He's emphasizing the counterpoint to help his listeners reform their current understandings of faithful community, or more specifically, how to relate to one another in a community. Up to this point in the chapter, he's used uh, different themes to kind of adequately weigh the importance of what he's trying to say. He's used images like millstones around necks, cutting off your hands, and now community exile. Fun stuff. In this case, Jesus is working through the issue of conflict in community, and in doing so, communicates the importance of things that are a little bit hard for us, like listening, slowly building trust, and embracing his presence in order to do so. These are reconciliatory practices, and I want to outline what I believe God may have for us to hear this morning around reconciliation. First, I want to talk about the nature of reconciling communities. A reconciling community is a listening community. The word listen is used three times as Jesus is outlining a conflict resolution process at the beginning of this text. There's an emphasis on listening that Jesus just continues to raise, continues to raise. And today, so often, we admittedly run from conflict, right? Which is actually a gateway to connection. But as mentioned earlier, it goes without saying that we live in an era of bad listening. It's, it's impractical. We're on our phones. We just don't have time. We're too busy. The invitation to make room for the humanity of Jesus and the humanity of others, even our own humanity, is really, really difficult. We'd rather hide behind the mirage of peace, especially if our privilege allows us to do so, than make room and space for all of this humanity. Yet for many of us, that faint memory of a community, a sacred community, that held connection beyond lived difference through Jesus stays with us. We can't get rid of it. We want it again. <laughs> so why? Why do we desire it? Why does the desire not go away? I believe that this vision of community has been written on our hearts and minds through common and specific grace. And Jesus in these texts is kind of building on that, expanding their view of reconciliation. And he's going to continue to do it as the church enters its infancy. Jesus is saying in these texts and beyond, the vision of a reconciled or reconciling church is worth sacrificing for time, resources, status. And that conflict and disagreement aren't as scary as actually missing the invitation that he's extending. This dynamic vibrancy of life done together, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. But still, everyone's like, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> but it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't take root necessarily in my life. Why is that? I ask myself that question. Why doesn't it um, stir the soul? And I think it's possible that we don't understand the transformative nature of this commitment of reconciliation through practicing community and its power to change our lives over time. I want to talk about um, how reconciling communities actually transform our hearts. So most of us intuitively know that disagreement and conflict within trusted environments changes our hearts. And why is this? Because conflict safely held in community reveals and helps us discern our fear of change our fear of, fear of being seen and known by others, even our fear of being seen and known by God. That's interesting, right? right? Like being in a community and being like, I'm actually here because I'm not trying to be seen by God here. You know, I've been there. This timeless rhythm has actually been explored even recently in the field of brain science by Brad Stolberg, who's uh, on public, faculty, health, public health faculty at the University of Michigan. In a recent op-ed in the New York Times, he shares that the practice of conflict, allostasis, is defined as stability through change, elegantly capturing the concept's double meaning, 
The way to stay stable through the process of change is by changing, at least to some extent. If you want to hold your footing, you got to keep moving. From neuroscience to pain science and psychology, allostasis has become the predominant model for understanding change in the scientific community. The brain is at its best when it is constantly rewiring itself and making new connections. What we experience as thriving and stable consciousness is actually a process of ongoing change. Overcoming pain, be it physical or physiological, sorry, psychological, is not about resistance, which often worsens the experience. Or trying to get back to where you've been before a distressing event or situation, it's about balancing acceptance with problem solving and moving forward to a new normal. We are created for change. Uh, in our case, not to become sort of like vaguely better, better humans. Like the onset of um, sort of self-help content in Christianity has always, always been a thing in our, in our context. In these verses, Jesus is saying, here's how you become more like me. Um, you, don't, you don't curate your content to become more like me necessarily. Your content should be human beings and practice community primarily. What we should realize, too, is this quality of stability through change has characterized the church since its inception. Now, we can't look at this text only as a prescription, again, for conflict and community, which maybe you've heard sermons that said, here's how you do this. Here's how you make sure someone is adequately rebuked or um, sort of handled. That's there. However, I think Jesus is trying to say something more about the centrality of disagreement in the Christian community and how it's the byproduct of slowly built trust and the lifeblood of a reconciling community. If the fear of being seen and known by the other and the fear of seeing, being seen and known by God removes us from engagement, our ability to heal and be healed in community, the things we really want, the things we reference often, will be absent. It'll be hard for us to trust God or one another, and we'll actually be marked by that mistrust as a community. The ability to hold disagreement will be too much to bear. We won't have the grace for ourselves to bear it, and will either crush us or lead to this mirage that I mentioned before, not something that's transforming. So all of this is worth considering, but what, what kind of gets in our way day to day? I would like to say that we have signed up often for a way of life that doesn't position us to become good listeners. Um, Jake Meter, in a recent article in The Atlantic called The Misunderstood Reason Millions of Americans Stop Going to Church. That's a long title for an article, in my opinion, but I clicked on it. <laughs> The problem in front of us is not that we have a healthy, sustainable society that doesn't have room for church. Then what is it, Jake? The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that's left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to even live in community with one another. Our pacing and the ways our lives are designed doesn't allow us to build trust. We don't have the emotional or spiritual infrastructure to even hold conflict and in turn to reconcile. If we don't have time to listen, we won't have time to practice life together. And if we don't have time to practice life together, we won't be a reconciling community. So in communities like these, we generally have, there's generally like two ways um, that people make their way through the community as we think about reconciling. Um, if you've been around church for a while, you'll know folks that know the Bible through and through, can teach you anything about the Bible or prayer, these types of things, but have maybe never had a difficult conversation in their entire life. Um, they run away from conflict at every turn. Or maybe you're in this camp. I'm in this camp. The opposite end, where you have all this relational fluency. You can talk to a lot of people. You have good relationships. But you don't see yourself or other people changing on account of that commitment or those relationships very often. 
Oftentimes, folks in that camp may even show up in ways that don't feel authentic to them to feel seen, but it never takes place. So we can either escape into ideas, Bible, church, cognitive stuff. We can escape into relationships. Both of these, centralized, not disordered, are critical for community, but in disordered ways can be ways of escaping transformative, reconciling community. So what do we do with that? I mean, maybe our our most natural way of being isn't always best, which I know for me can be a relief. (laughs) Showing up with too much of myself uh, can be exhausting. Um, I'm sure it can be that way for a lot of us. All right, so this question that I've been sitting with is, is this. Do we agree that what unites us most fully is our common brokenness rather than what divides us? Let me say that one more time because I think some of y'all aren't hearing me this morning. Do we agree that what unites us most fully is our common brokenness rather than what divides us? David Zoll in his book, Low Anthropology, which is a fantastic book, I encourage you to read it, says, a theologian might say that God has given everyone different gifts and abilities, yet similar weaknesses. This is one of the great insights of the Christian faith. The world runs after success and strength and perfection and finds that the track only gets longer. The runner is more spread out. The Christian considers weakness the location of grace and unity, not evidence of their absence. You might say, then, we are separated by our virtues, but united in our distance from virtue. Good listeners agree that our shared weakness in a trusted community provide the ideal soil for growing us up into Christ. Um, This is apparent in anonymous groups. Uh, I have a really courageous friend who's on a recovery journey. And as I was processing this sermon, he was like, that's kind of funny because anonymous groups, we we understand that we are broken pretty quickly. (laughs) In fact, we don't get to engage anymore if we don't name our own brokenness and our inability to get it right. They're united in their brokenness. Oftentimes, churches take a little bit of time to get there, right? So how do we cultivate this in community? As we think about cultivating a reconciling community, the first question that came up for me is, is, am I, are we even thinking like a community, like a group of people that belong to each other? Are we thinking that way? Uh, we should note this invitation or, or this, this kind of message that Jesus is sharing for his listeners. They're ancient Near, East pe- uh, ancient Near Eastern people. They would have thought of themselves as a collective before they thought of themselves as individuals. It's a communal posture and invitation, not an individual one. Um, growing up, I, I grew up, for, for those of you who don't know, here on the east side of Atlanta, for the most part of my childhood, went to Fernbank Elementary, um, Grant Park, uh, several different neighborhoods. We can get at it later. But one of the, one of the benefits um, of growing up here in Atlanta um, was getting to meet Dr. Joseph, Joseph Lowry. You can see his name all over the city, particularly on the West End. Uh, my father worked for an organization called SCLC, founded by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So I'd see Joseph Lowry. He's very funny, making jokes in the office and these types of things. Um, but one story my dad told me about Joseph Lowry is when they went to Dallas to hold a national board meeting, um, uh, Lowry and, and the folks around him decided that they would do a march against a hate group called the Skinheads. When they got there, they pulled over and did a, had a moment of collective prayer in a small church, getting ready to march against this group and also to do some organizing. Um, 
And at that time, uh, the FBI actually showed up and pulled Dr. Lowry aside and said, uh, hey, we have, we have good reason. We have this intel that's telling us that there's a sniper situated that could cause you and the group great harm, particularly you. They're going to be focused on you. We kept talking, and Dr. Lowry said, well, what do we do? The FBI said, we, we recommend you wear a bulletproof vest. So he considered it for a minute. And he asked the FBI agent, he said, does everybody here get a bulletproof vest that's going to be marching today? The FBI agent said, no. Dr. Lowry said that I will not be wearing a vest today during this march. Dr. Lowry saw an opportunity for solidarity in that moment, which exceeded his desire for individual autonomy or protection. His vision of reconciliation was larger than his vision of self-protection. It's important also to note that the words against you are likely added later in these writings, and the phrase was likely meant during the beginning of this text as an affront towards the whole community. Again, we're accustomed to individual slights. I got cut off, they didn't laugh at my joke, they didn't like my IG post, these types of things. But again, these people would have thought of their community first, protecting it and cultivating it. And let me say this before we go further. Obviously, the sequencing of Jesus' instruction one-on-one, a few people, and then taking it to a larger group should guard against abuse. This is not an endorsement to build trust without careful discernment, to be clear. But we are faced with a big picture here that I want to work hard to name. And this is kind of the central, as someone who doesn't preach, thank you all, first of all, for being gracious. You're a great group of listeners. I notice that every week, you're a great group of listeners. But um, this is what I really, really want to drive home as I have personally sat with the text and what it's done in my heart. We have to name our need to be reconciled to Jesus in order to become reconciled, reconcilers. I'm going to say that one more time. We have to first name our need to be reconciled to Jesus in order to become reconcilers, to have the ability to have any sort of power, presence for transformation as reconcilers that must be named. If that level of grace doesn't move us at a heart level, um, then we're just going to have a difficult time. This is a cyclical grace-driven process. We recognize our need to be reconciled to Jesus and therefore one another. And finally, to embrace and to cultivate, sorry, to cultivate this type of community, we need to embrace the promise of presence. And this is a really important distinction. This is what's different about the church versus sort of like this conflict resolution technique that we can take from this text. Reconciliation isn't passive maintenance or even self-made movements of peace. It's the communal ongoing echo of Jesus' movement towards us and in us. And this is, the, to me, the most exciting part of this, this text as I sat with it. At the end of the text, Jesus makes an astonishing statement. He says, truly I tell you, which is like, for real. I've talked about this technique, not for real. He says, look, here's this communal legislative process that's underscored by Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 19 and private assembly in the Qumran community. This is all stuff that's been proven. It works. But now you have the agency to bind and loose and have it on earth. And what's he saying? He's saying there's a big difference here. There's a big difference here. I've now inaugurated freedom because you don't have to worry about generating your own freedom anymore. I'm giving it to you. This is the type of community that you can animate because of me. I've arrived. We're good. And then you're like, man, that's a great verse. He could kind of bounce after that, right? <laughs> But then he says, truly I tell you, which is like for real, for real. <laughs> and he says, because we're two or more gathered, and goes on to this kind of moment around that. 
And I think it's important to, to understand that, that these listeners would have perceived Jesus as saying that he's providing the promise of Shekinah glory, which in the Old Testament would have meant that God shows up everywhere, nature, people, the temple. Jesus is saying, you don't have to, like, separate any of that anymore. Number one, you can lose what you lose, bind what you bind, and now I'm here to animate it fully. And I'm showing up in full glory out of my love to empower you to do it. This technique is great. Pay attention to the technique. But here's what I'm doing now, a new thing. Um, okay, so I want to end with this. Some of us have been idealing, idealizing community um, for so long. All of us do it. I mean, I feel like this is something that we don't even know that we do, but we're like, hey, did you go to the thing and see the people? Cool. Who do you, do you hang out with them? Who, who do you hang out with? Everybody's like kind of organizing their, their communities or their primary community in all these ways. But we slowly build an ideal behind this. Some of us have been idealizing a community of friends or companions for so long with no fruit bearing. And Jesus is simply saying, move all of that into my presence. Because reconciliation is the starting point of your conflict, your sin, your inability to see one another in spirit and truth, not the end of your ability to listen. Bring your deficiency to me. He's saying, the reason why you can't figure out your ideal community is because I'm behind it. Reach for me. Bring it into the presence of God. Whether you know it or not, I'm there. Invite me into your severed relationship. Invite me into your prejudice. Invite me into the pain of never feeling heard because it's my ability to hear you, see you, and love you over and over again beyond your limitedness that marks a reconciling community. You have a new possibility for seeing a reconciling community because now I'm with you in spite of your inward and outward conflict. And it's also a side note. Key, key to note that Jesus is kind of setting the stage right here before he presents his central message in Matthew on forgiveness, which is another texture that's really fun to think about uh, up here. So here in the South, we hear reconciliation often used in reference to race, which is apt as it measures an extreme distance, extreme distance in understanding between two groups. One group's willingness through nonviolence to listen at all odds, in the face of another group's long-term and sustained violence. One of the legacies of the civil rights movement was this modeling of active listening led by black clergy. Jo Joseph Lowry was one of them who I just mentioned. But this morning, I want to humbly offer a take on what powered this miraculous group of active listeners. The greatest indicator of a reconciling community is one that, due to its acknowledgement of shared brokenness, and the practice of bringing that brokenness together into the light of the presence of God can hold seemingly impossible, impossible aspects of disagreement. Believing that what unites us isn't us, but the great listener, the final listener, as we sang earlier, the listener who holds it all together, Colossians 1. As we recognize our great need to be reconciled to him, we will have the grace to reconcile in ways we never thought possible, never thought possible. So I want to invite us into to kind of four different invitations uh, or risks, however you want to think about this. And I, I really want us to hear this because I've sat with this for a while personally and, and, and myself trying to step into these two. Number one, have you ever had the opportunity to name your need to be reconciled to Jesus? Does this story of God moving to you through Jesus because you couldn't reconcile your own brokenness, does that move you at an emotional level? If you have not, I invite you to talk to someone, even pastoral staff here, about like naming it, talking about it. 
This does not, it's not um, every eye closed, head bowed moment. It's not that, but it is kind of like that, <laughs> in that if that's something that's tugging on your heart, we do ask you to pursue forums to explore it, you know? Number two, are you currently in an unresolved conflict with someone in this community? Are you currently in an unresolved conflict with someone in this community? I invite you to take a step as God has already reconciled you to himself, already made you safe to pursue reconciliation safely with the support of others. Third, the movement of reconciliation in Christ is cyclical, moving from the inner to the outer life and back in again. Are you, con- are you cultivating? Are you reconciling community through neighborhood groups? I know this just kicked off. That's not a plug for neighborhood groups, but it does work out that way, you know? Uh, prayer groups, partner communities, different things happening in the life of the church. Finally, as our friend Rich Perez put it to me this week, is the old thing God did in your life getting in the new way of the new thing that he's trying to do? Have you over-memorialized one season of your faith at the expense of what God's trying to do right now today in 2023? What type of community are you idealizing maybe without even knowing it? And is Jesus central within that ideal? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you and praise you and are humbled that you moved against great odds to meet us and continue to do so. Lord, we pray that that movement would make us grateful, would make us good listeners, would make us patient, so that we would be marked by the way in which we reconcile here at Emmanuel and into, our, into the streets tomorrow, into our workplaces and families. In your name we pray. Amen.